agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. The government of the government love. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Joining me today is political and policy analyst Kristen Matheny. Hey, Kristen. Hey, Mike. How are you? I am doing well today. How about you? I'm good. Happy Saturday. Yeah. (laughs) So before we get started with everything we have to do today, I wanted to uh, just give a big thank you to all of our new supporters. It was a, a record week for us, and we are very grateful to all of you. And as I announced last week, under our new format, we have one episode per week available to everyone, and that's what you're listening to right now. And we also have a second full-length episode each week, as well as completely ad-free shows exclusively for our Patreon supporters at the $5 or higher level. And then at $10 or more, you can join our Politics Guys Slack group, where you can sort of look behind the curtain, see how we put the show together, learn about what we're thinking about doing maybe in the future, and give us your input on all of that. Also, it's important to us that nobody be shut out because of financial issues. So if you want to hear that full-length midweek show, but you can't afford to become a supporter, just email me. I'm at mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you all set up. But if you feel like what we do is valuable and you can afford to support the show, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash politicsguys for more details and to sign up to become a monthly supporter. Thanks very much. Okay, and I think with that, we are ready to get to it, Kristen. We are. I think we are. So um, the first story that we wanted to talk about are the pardons, uh, Trump's pardons. And then we also wanted to get into a discussion, a bigger discussion about pardons and the process of pardoning. um, Some of the questions that have come up um, over the years, because certainly the issue of pardoning, this isn't anything new and exclusive to Trump. This is something that causes people on both sides to question the process every time it does come up under different presidents. So just to give you a bit of a recap, um, this past week, Trump granted clemency to 11 people. And clemency is kind of a blanket term for things like pardons, um, commutations of sentences, different ways to reduce sentencing. So I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, But he granted clemency to 11 people. Um, The recipients included a range of of different people from disgraced former Illinois governor Rod Blagojevich, which is a name I never thought I'd say on this podcast (laughs) again, but um, interesting there. um, And former New York City Police Commissioner Bernie Carrick to different businessmen and women. And there were some uh, few uh, people convicted of lower level drug crimes whose sentences were commuted. As always, the president's pardons and these commutations of sentences have caused a a great deal of attention. Um, Many are questioning the ability of the president to pardon just generally. The process and whether presidential pardoning should still exist as a constitutionally granted plenary power. So, um, yeah, you know, I guess we could probably address Trump's pardons in particular, and then maybe we could go into a broader discussion of that. What are your thoughts, Mike? Well, I wish I could say it was surprising to me, but it's totally not. Donald Trump has demonstrated he has uh, uh, no problems using the power of his office in a more nakedly partisan way, or even I could call it personal way, than any of his predecessors, who, you know, certainly there have been political pardons in the past and plenty of them. But uh, Donald Trump is unusual in, in at least a couple of respects. Number one, most presidents don't do their pardoning 
so or, or exercised their clemency power so early in their administration. So in that way, you could maybe say, well, Donald Trump is being more uh, honest about things, and I'm sure his supporters would say that. But on the other hand, if you take a look at who is getting clemency, uh, these the sort of political help my friends sort of thing, that's much more the, ex- the rule than the exception for President Trump. And it was sort of the reverse with other presidents where they would occasionally throw in a, you know, a, a clemency for a political supporter or someone who they thought was on their side. But for the most part, it wasn't, that wasn't how the process worked. And Donald Trump is just turning this process like so many other on, on its head. And I think that's a, I think that's a big problem. So that's my initial thought about Donald Trump's uh, exercise of his clemency power. What do you think? So it's funny because I I had I I had the feeling that I w- that I was going to have trouble finding out the true number of Donald Trump's pardoning pardons and um, commutations compared to other presidents, and I was I was right. And I'm not saying that there's you know lying going on in, in the reporting of these numbers, but I found it interesting that um, it, to be fair, every president gets takes a lot of heat. For pardons. And I think that a lot of that, especially in recent years, has to do with the 24-7 news cycle. Um, if you look back through history, um, especially in the 20th century, I think I found a really staggering number. 20,000 pardons and commutations um, have been given throughout the 20th century. That's a lot of pardon, presidential pardons and commutations. And with a few exceptions, the exceptions being George Washington, John Adams, and of course, Garfield and Harrison, um, who both died while they were in office, um, Trump has actually pardoned fewer people than any other president. Now, I think there are probably some pretty rational reasons for this. He hasn't served a full term yet. I think a lot of it has to do with the pressure from the 24-7 news cycle. I mean, as the 20th century has kind of gone on, um, presidents have pardoned fewer and fewer people. There have been fewer commutations. I think presidents are have become more aware. You started to see this with uh, George W. Bush and then Barack Obama. They're very aware of the backlash to these pardons. But the idea of political pardoning isn't anything new. I mean, that the first person to really take a lot of heat for that was John F. Kennedy um, when he disagreed with some of the, the laws that were being pushed through. And so he was using uh, pardons as a way to get around um, the ramped up enforcement of drug laws during his term. And, you know, I think to your point, um, you know, I don't think there's any defense for Donald Trump. Um, looking at people favorably who like him. I, I think I, and again, like, I think it, I think it's pretty brazen of him to pardon people who are outward supporters of him. I mean, Rod Blagojevich has now called himself a, a Trump, did he call himself a Trumpocrat or a Trumpcrat or something? I mean, it, you know, he does, he does value loyalty and, and, you know, this is not the first time we've talked about that. But I want to call attention to the fact that he did pardon some lower level drug offenders. And, you know, there were some there was some buzz on Twitter that he wasn't pardoning people of color, but he did actually four of the people he pardoned and and granted commutations to uh, were people of color. So, you know, I I get your point. I get your point. But I I think that it we have to put it in in the broader spectrum of of history and the fact that um, 
you know, he in this grand scheme of things, he hasn't actually pardoned that many people compared to other presidents. Right. And now if we make that a comparison at this point in the term, it's a different story again, because right, mostly. Right. And, and I would also say that uh, uh, if you take a look at uh, if you take a look at uh, the sort of type, I think it's much more important to look at who is being pardoned. Like, for instance, I believe Donald Trump at this point has pardoned, uh, given the fact that, you know, so many, so many black males are in the criminal justice system. And so many, I think, are have a a case, a strong case to be made for a commutation or something. Uh, I believe at this point, Donald Trump has pardoned one black male, and that's Jack Johnson, the boxer from uh, early in the 20th century. And, you know, that's a bit of a head scratcher for me, certainly. more generally speaking, if we take a look at, you know, uh, sorry, Barack Obama issued uh, a record number of pardons, I believe. But again, it's not the number. It's where they come from. Um, he issued 212 pardons and 1,715 commutations. That's a lot. But those were mainly for nonviolent drug offenders. And see, that's the sort of thing where I, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think the intent of the framers behind giving the president the pardon power was so that the president could step in. And when there was a clear miscarriage of justice, something that you would agree was a problem, whether you were a Democrat or a Republican or what have you, that the president could step in and right a very clear wrong. That's not what's going on here. And, you know, once again, it makes me think that the framers set up the pardon power, which is essentially just about absolute, right? Because Article 2, Section 2 says he can pardon, you know, give reprieves and right. pardons for anything except for impeachment. So, but I think the framers believe that the people running these institutions and the president, these would be reasonably ethical people who would generally uh, abide by the unwritten rules and norms that, you know, people in power have abided by. and. <clears throat> That's not Donald Trump. And so this presents a problem when we have institutions, I think, based on an assumption that people will just not be so nakedly, I I, I don't think corrupt is the right word, but certainly uh, nakedly in it for themselves and to promote their own political interest. And I don't think maybe that's a failing of the framers, but I think the system has generally worked pretty well. And even though previous presidents have occasionally at the end stepped into pardon a very questionable person. And here on the left, I think about Bill Clinton in what I feel is his- Patty un- Hearst? What? No, I've, no, not at all Patty oh, Hearst. Okay. Okay. No, his yeah. unconscionable par- pardon of Mark Rich, I would say. Yeah. And that's an example okay. of helping out a friend. So it does happen. But once again, Donald Trump takes it to a new level. And that, that is a big problem to me. Now, to me, the larger question, though, here is, uh, concerns our clemency system. You know, some people have said, Does it make sense to have this in the Department of Justice where it's been since 1865? Uh, And the idea, the argument, I guess, being that, well, these are the people who are convicting these folks of crimes. And should we therefore have them be in charge of recommending pardons? Because won't they be inclined to not do that or just wouldn't make more sense to have that independent? And it seems like that's what the White House is saying there they're trying to do is set up a system outside of the department of justice. And I'm not necessarily against that, 
But it also seems to me that the president's system isn't so much to make sure that it's independent, but just so that he doesn't have to concern himself with that at all. And it can just be more nakedly partisan. So I've got my son-in-law working on it, apparently. Jared Kushner's the big guy in this. And, you know, sometimes I hear people on Fox News, and that apparently is a big part of, you know, celebrity. Kim Kardashian said, I should pardon this woman. So, okay, that's that's no kind of process. That's no kind of procedure. That's the sort of ad hoc, uh, what feels good to me at this moment sort of governance that we've seen from Donald Trump far too often in his presidency. So I think you can make a rational argument that certainly the the Department of Justice's pardon attorney office is is too small. There are something like 13,000 requests. And I believe when I checked, they have a pardon attorney, a deputy pardon attorney, uh, and four staff attorneys and, and a couple of like clerical people, basically. So you can make an argument that that staff needs to be much larger and may be taken outside of the Department of Justice. But I would like to see something more along the lines of, say, the FEC, where, you know, it's an independent board. A majority can't be of either political party. And uh, you can have nominations by the president, Senate approval, that sort of thing. but. You can't have those recommendations be binding because the Constitution clearly says that this is the presidential power. But still, mm-hmm. that would, I think, at least address some of these concerns without uh, making this just a completely nakedly partisan sort of thing. But, you know, once again, I feel like we're just trying to, at least on the left, we're just trying to design around a man who nobody really expected the sort of man who no one ever really expected to be president, uh, a a man who just seems to be, you know, doesn't really care at all about norms of democracy and just about getting things done for himself and his supporters. And, you know, that's a problem. Well, you know, while you were talking, I, I kept in my brain sort of pointing to things like the First Step Act and the Second Chances Initiative, which are both um, sort of these, I guess, pillars of of Trump's of Trumpian policy and things that he's touted. I mean, um, his Super Bowl ad for reelection touted the First Step Act. And, um, you know, it sort of goes along the same lines of, of what you're talking about. There's a more official legislative way to uh, reduce recidivism, um, to give people who have been convicted, especially people that you were talking about, people who have been convicted of these lower level crimes, these nonviolent offenders, drug offenses, things like that, um, a a second chance um, at at life in general. And of course, the, the second chance initiative would allow for them to become contributing members of society um, to be hired um, and to to make that work for them once they were once they left prison. So I guess I would point to that as something I personally just as as a Trump supporter, but also as somebody who is not afraid to be critical of Trump. I personally think that the First Step Act and the Second Chance Initiative are both really, really important when we're having this conversation. This is an element that I feel like a lot of people on the left leave out when they point to the fact that Trump has pardoned uh, these people who generally are are supportive of him. Um, They have donated to him. A lot of these people are philanthropists for conservative causes. Um, And I think, you know, I I agree with you. I think that this is something that, that he's done. I think it's something that presidents have done. Like you mentioned. Um, but 
to, to sort of ignore the First Step Act and the Second Chance Initiative, I think is a little short-sighted because I think these are really important pieces. Uh, I think the First Step Act is a really important piece of legislation. I think the Second Chance Initiative is critical to reducing recidivism and to improving the lives of pe- the people that we're targeting. Um, as for the what you mentioned about um, possibly forming some sort of a, a board um, within the structure and and I guess sort of or, or in this, let me ask you a question. Are we second guessing what the framers, because I think it was, was it Hamilton who brought up the idea of, of um, pardoning? I think it, that was a Hamilton idea. I, Am I, 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 oh, I, I like think, Hamilton. I think you're right. I was going to say it sounds like him, but, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I guess to me, if, if Donald Trump wanted to do something big and bold, uh, on this issue, he doesn't have to wait for Congress on this. He's not shy about using his executive authority when it comes to, you know, uh, uh, questionable constitutionality of reappropriating congressionally uh, approved money. He could very easily set up a new office within the executive branch, and maybe they're doing that. We'll see how that plays out. Much mm-hmm. bigger with a lot more attorneys and say, you know, I'm going to do something. He would never use these words, but I'm going to do something much bigger than anything Barack Obama did, I'm going to really take a crack at this problem. And if he thinks that, if he thinks that close to 2,000 commutations or clemency acts is something, wait till you see what I'm going to do. And if he really wanted to say to, especially to minority communities who, you know, disproportionately are in many cases, I would say unfairly are in our criminal justice system, then that's when mm-hmm. he could stop just talking to talk and he could walk the walk and say, who's done more as president to get people unjustly convicted or for too long sentences for these nonviolent crimes? No one's done more for you than Donald J. Trump. And he's not doing that. And that tells me something about Donald J. Trump. I don't know. I, I, uh, it, it, like you said, it remains to be seen if he, if he'll do something like that. I just I think that um, I can't help but think. I, and again, I don't I don't like conjecture and I don't like guessing at the future. But if he were to do something like that, I, there would be backlash. I just it, it just seems like I I know there- people. Who- yeah, I think there would be backlash just because it's Trump and he and he's doing something outside the confines of what people who don't support him think he's supposed to do. Oh, I see. You're saying backlash. I see. I think yeah. there would be, I mean, on the left, certainly plenty of people on the left are very much uh, believe that there are a lot of minorities who are serving overly long sentences. Oh, there just are. Because, yeah, that seems yeah. to be, you know, there's there's some bipartisan consensus. So oh, sure. there might be some, sure, there would be pushback from the sort of people who Donald Trump could give away, you know, free beer and ponies and they would think he's <laughs> awful. But that doesn't really, I mean, that that's, that's unimportant. It's, to me, the fact of the matter is that Donald Trump could do something today that could make a significant difference in the lives of thousands of people right now, people who he says he cares about. And instead, he decides that, well, I'll pardon people like I'll give clemency to people like Joe Arpaio and, 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 and Rod Blagojevich and, and, and these sort of people. And to me, that's just that's just sad and really kind of. Disapp- deeply disappointing. Okay, I guess. I mean, I guess. I guess we agree on some things and we disagree yeah. on some things. You know, I think. I think the people he did pardon. Just you know, I'm look. I wrote all the names down here, and I'm looking at the list. I mean, these are people who wouldn't be affected by, um, or, or I guess I should say they. Most of them would not be affected by the the First Step Act. Um, but I, 
you know, I, I just, I would, I would urge people to, you know, maybe this is something that, that we need to push President Trump to do as Republicans and as his supporters to ramp up efforts to, um, you know, grant clemency to people who are serving these long yeah. sentences, these man, these minimum, these awful minimum mandatories we always yeah. talk about on the right, you know, um, and even some people on the left, I think there's a lot of bipartisan support to do away with a lot of minimum mandatories. Yeah. And, um, you know, um, I think it's something that that we should look at very critically. But I, you know, I would urge people to look at the First Step Act and to and to consider it um, as as something as as a start. I mean, it really is a start. Those communities you mentioned are are very disproportionately affected, and and people, thousands of people. My husband's a defense attorney, and and he's defended many of these people who are serving these ridiculous sentences because of these archaic minimum mandatory laws. Um, they're serving these disproportionate sentences, you know, third strike and whatnot um, for these nonviolent offenses. A lot of them are, are drug offenses. It, uh, Alice Johnson comes to mind, you know, um, Crystal Munoz, whose sentence was commuted, comes to mind. But they're not the only ones. There are thousands of these people. And this is something we need to look at and examine just as a society. Yeah. And, and at, not just as a society. But again, the president could do this in a Trumpian way. It could be a big, beautiful wall of pardons and clemencies just from <laughs> sea to shining sea. And I would love to see it for one. And if President Trump did that, I would be the first one to say, good for you, Donald J. Trump. I'm using his middle initial I'll today. Hold you a lot yeah, of you know why. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> but hey, I know we got more to talk about, but we do, we do. before we do move on, we'd like to thank our sponsor for today, and that's Empower. You know, pretty much everyone could use some extra money, and Empower can help you save a lot more money than you might have thought possible. Here's how it works. You just put in your weekly savings target, and then Empower studies your income and your spending, and then automatically moves the right amount of money into your savings account, where you're going to be less likely to spend it. Empower also has budgeting for people who hate budgeting, and gives you reports with actionable spending insights and personally tailored smart savings recommendations. Empower can even negotiate on your behalf to lower your bills. They also give you real live person coaching for any financial questions you might have and high interest FDIC insured checking with no minimums. So if you want to say big this year, download Empower. That's E-M-P-O-W-E-R in the App Store or Play Store. I did, and over 650,000 other people have too. And Politics Guys listeners, you get $5 when you use offer code POLITICSGUYS and reach your savings goal. Visit empower.me slash politicsguys for more details. Okay, so what do we have next, Kristen? Next up, all right. Yay, we're going to talk about the debate. Ah. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, I know. Every, everybody is probably there. We probably have people who are shouting hooray and people who are groaning because, you know, they're I guess the debate fatigue is starting to set in. But um, I still find it interesting. So we had uh, this past week, this past Thursday, actually Thursday night, um, there were six Democratic presidential candidates that took the stage in Nevada to duke it out. And um, this is, of course, just days before the Nevada caucus. So, of course, um, you know, we're, we're following these races uh, very closely. And these six uh, candidates definitely did duke it out. It definitely was a bit of a grudge match. And there was a lot of uh, uh, there were many pundits on both sides who had a lot to say about it. But of course, this is where you'll get the exclusive politics guys' opinions about what happened. So we had Senate, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Senator Bernie Sanders, Mayor Pete, Pete Buttigieg, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden, 
Senator Amy Klobuchar and former mayor uh, Mike Bloomberg, who took the stage. And this was Bloomberg's first appearance. So, again, without getting into too much detail, um, it was just sort of generally accepted that things got a bit chaotic at points, which isn't unusual for a debate like this, especially as we get closer to the election. And um, they definitely went for each other's jugulars. So, um, yeah, like I said, we're this is where you'll get the exclusive politics guys take. I don't know what what were your as a Democrat, what were your takeaways, Mike? I, I had some thoughts, but I wanted to hear your thoughts first. <laughs> I never thought I would I would say I would I would say the or start off a sentence with poor Mike Bloomberg, but <laughs> but uh, but no, yeah. I I mean clearly he was a rookie at this and not comfortable, and it it you know, definitely especially on the non-disclosure uh, question sort of fiasco yeah. where he just sort of tried to brazen it out basically, and now I should point out that I think it was just yesterday he issued a statement saying that uh, if uh, in three of the cases where there are NDAs, he would allow if. if People wanted to be released from them. They should contact his organization and they would do that. And of course, the other candidates saying, well, that's just not enough because basically the only thing that would be enough for say, well, any of them really would be if Mike Bloomberg just said, oh my God, I am so wrong. I'm getting out of the race and donating all of my money to your campaign. I think that would be enough, but just barely, <laughs> essentially. That's just you know how it goes. But you know, on a more kind of public policy level, and he took a lot of heat for stop and frisk, and he wasn't honest about that. You know, he said it declined a whole lot at, by the end of his term. Yes, that's true, mm -hmm. but because of a court order, he's apologized mm -hmm. for it, said it was a mistake. Now, maybe he means that, or maybe he's just saying that now that he, uh, you know, wants to be president of the United States. I don't know, but um, more generally, he just, you know, seemed very uncomfortable uh, in in the in the position, sort of, uh, you know, a bit. Uh, not so much dismissive, but you could tell he wasn't used to being in that sort of a forum with just, you know, the riffraff sort of challenging him and so forth. And I imagine that would be kind of a shock to him. And, you know, I thought to mm -hmm. myself, Mike Bloomberg, it seems to me, you know, he was he has been a Republican. So some people say, well, he's not really a Democrat. Well, I thought, well, he's definitely a technocrat, right? He's such a data driven yeah. guy. And maybe he's an autocrat, too. I don't know. but. Uh, he does, you know, he does hold to a lot of very important values to people on the left. And he not only holds to these values, but he has spent millions and millions of dollars supporting these values and these candidates. And you know, I think it's fair to say that financially, no one has been a bigger friend to liberal values in the Democratic Party in the last, you know, four years or so than Mike Bloomberg. And maybe that's with an end in mind, certainly, but hey, we'll, we'll take all the help we can get certainly. Um, but more generally, uh, you know, there's been a lot of this who won, who lost the debate, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. uh, the personalities. To me, you know, it, I don't know that I, political science research says that debates tend not to change things a whole lot because for the most part, not a lot of, lot, lot of people watch, especially the primary debates. And most people have their minds made up anyway. And so, you know, I mean, I like I like uh, Pete Buttigieg, and I thought he he seemed like the most sort of cool, calm, and collected person there. But of course, I would you know I would think that right. Um, <laughs> but more generally, here I, I wanted to sort of pull back from you know the kind of standard pundit kind of stuff and ask people a broader question, maybe a deeper question, um, and that is what should you reasonably look for in a presidential candidate? Because now that it's down to six, I'm thinking a lot about this because now I know 
Kristen, you're, you have your person, but, but for me, there are six viable people and I need to, I need to make a decision. And I've, you know, I've said, I like one or the other, but I wanted to approach this sort of systematically. And so I thought, well, what's most important, what's least important and how do I weigh these things? And how could this maybe help out other people who also are not decided yet? So I, w- I was hoping I could kind of go through that and you could maybe tell, tell me what you think. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, so, let's go for it. I'd love to hear your points on this. Okay. So most important in, in one sense is uh, the first thing I thought of was the ability to win. Mm-hmm. You know, and because electability is key. You know, I may have a lot of great ideas. I think I do. I, I, I think absolutely. I'm a, I'm a good big picture guy. I think you know. You could think that your barber has a lot of great ideas, but yeah. <laughs> do you want to put your time and, and and effort and and focus on someone who doesn't have a realistic shot? Now, what does that mean? You know, who the hell really knows? Donald Trump, I would have said, you know, in 2015 wasn't electable, and so a lot of people said that, and so. I think you can make a case that all of these candidates are electable, right? Uh, Bernie Sanders is maybe the the toughest case, I would say, but certainly you can't say for any of them, oh, no, this would never happen, right? Mm -hmm. Now, of the six remaining candidates, I think probably the the case for the least viable, I would say that would be Elizabeth Warren. And and that's just Mm -hmm. because I eliminate her from my consideration because it seems to me that she and Bernie Sanders are very similar. Bernie Sanders has essentially all the energy on that progressive wing. And so I just don't really see a viable path to Elizabeth Warren getting the nomination. So I'm just going to put her aside right okay. there, you know. Okay. Um, but so there's that. And I say, okay, they're all sort of electable. Maybe not Warren so much because I don't think she's going to get the nomination. Number two, but, but wait, before we get to number two, Kristen, maybe I'm wrong about this. And I think, you know, okay, (laughs) let me just say, here's what I mean. Well, here's what I mean in a larger sense. Maybe I am because, you know, Bernie wasn't elect, wasn't seen as being electable in 2016 and he lost the nomination to Hillary Clinton, but maybe that's what laid the groundwork. And you could make a case that is what laid the groundwork for Bernie 2020 and if, if if in you know January 2021 Bernie Sanders is president, well, maybe there's a case to be made for supporting someone who's not electable right now, but who's in, but who embodies the sort of ideals that might make him or her or a future candidate electable. And I'm thinking of, for instance, uh, historical precedents like Ronald Reagan ran for president mm-hmm. in 1976, and he didn't defeat uh, he didn't defeat Gerald Ford in the primaries, mm-hmm. but of course, he did become president in 1980 and, you know, and the Reagan revolution and all that. And before that, there was Barry Goldwater, who mm-hmm. ran in six, was nominated in 64, got totally wiped out by Johnson. But a lot of conservatives would say that laid the groundwork for the conservative revolution. So you can make a case, I think, that even if your candidate isn't electable, you say, well, sure, he might he or she might not win in the long in, in the short term, but maybe it's more important to take a loss stick with my principles and build on that. Now, I would say, given how atrocious of a president Donald Trump is, that's a pretty risky proposition, but okay, it's not an unreasonable argument. So that's what I wanted to say about maybe I'm wrong in a sense on electability. Does that make sense? It does. But, you know, 
I, the thing is that when we say that electability is important, we're not saying that it's necessarily the thing that we think it's most important. It just is. It's sort of a, a political, it's a political fact that elect, electability and likability, which sort of goes along the same lines, are both important, um, that that person is liked by by their constituents and, and by, you know, independents who might be persuaded to vote for them. But also there's that electability factor. And when you talked about Elizabeth Warren, um, and I don't know if you're going to discuss likability separately, I, I'm not sure. But but one of the things that that strikes me and um, uh, and I and I think it's, it strikes a lot of people on the right, if I sort of remove my Republican hat for just a second and I step out of, you know, the 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 Trump zone, the GOP zone, when I look at Bernie Sanders and I look at Elizabeth Warren, I mean, I told you on this podcast, like maybe a year ago or nine or 10 months ago, that Bernie Sanders was the one I was most afraid of, not because I thought he was most electable. I'm, I, I personally don't think he is electable right now, uh, which is what you just said. But uh, the thing that strikes me as different between Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders is that Bernie Sanders comes across as genuine, which is, you know, this is something he's he's dedicated his life to these beliefs for better or for worse. I say for worse. You know, I'm not a Democratic Socialist, but Warren sort of echoes a lot of these same viewpoints, but she's seen as a lot. Uh, less genuine, um, and she's arguably a lot less likable, and so therefore she's less electable. And so I too would push her aside. But I think when it comes to um, something like Bernie Sanders, I mean, in a lot of ways, um, his a uh, 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 Bernie Sanders candidacy is is totally un- unprecedented. Uh, we've never had somebody rise through the ranks who was a democratic socialist before, which is where I think his uh, the, the issue of his electability comes into play. Um, but, you know, in terms of just like energy, enthusiasm, it's behind Bernie. And and that is why um, I I was m- far more fearful of him in 2016 than of Hillary Clinton, even though I knew Clinton would get the nomination because of the superdelegates and everything else going on. Um, I-, I agree with you to 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 a greater extent. And, and I and I also would push Warren to the side. I don't think she's going to get the nomination. Yeah. And, and I think we both agree on why. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So after that, I mean, whether or not you think it's the most important, I would say clearly the next thing is, is in choosing a candidate is policy agreement, right? You want yeah. to, obviously you want, and we don't even have to, you know, talk about that. That's just, is pretty, pretty straightforward, but. And that's what we do. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. but after that, then, you know, cause, cause pretty much when you, I mean, essentially if policy agreement is your thing, then you have, you know, you have your Warren, you have your Warren Sanders, and then you have the other four who are, you know, pretty, pretty darn similar, honestly. So. Yeah. And that's, that's me. Cause so how do I, I mean, basically I'm in that, you know, I'm in that center left camp. And so what does that mean for me? Well, that goes to the third thing and that's experience or record. And mm-hmm. for, for me, ideally you want somebody who has both executive and legislative experience at a very high level and who's had a lot of, a lot of responsibilities there. And right away, one person stands out, and that's Joe Biden, of course. Mm-hmm. I think nobody in the field has a better understanding of what the job of president is like than Joe Biden because of his proximity to you know, a, an actual president for eight years. And also, of course, Joe Biden has been in the Senate for, I don't know, since like uh, shortly after Reconstruction or something like that. So mm-hmm. it's been a while, right? So, <laughs> so, but of course, the problem with Joe Biden is... Uh, uh, well, we'll get to that. Actually, it's another one of my things, but, uh, uh, there's Joe Biden. Then I think after that, then there's Mike Bloomberg. And you could say, well, he was just the mayor, but 
But, he but it's was, New York City. He's a mayor of New York City. And when you think about yeah. that, when you think about that, New York City's budget has, is larger than the budgets of more than 40 states. Yeah. Its economy is the size of South yeah. Korea's. I mean, so. It's wild. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is enormous. So nobody on that stage, I don't think, has more anywhere close to the sort of high level executive experience that Mike Bloomberg does. It's not even, it's not even close, you know? Uh, and then you have, you know, you have, uh, uh, I guess you have uh, Sanders who's, you know, he was mayor of Burlington, so, you know, back in right. the day, but, right. you know, so the, there's not a whole lot of that there, but that to me isn't necessarily a disqualifier because, you know, Barack Obama didn't have a lot of experience. And as far as I'm concerned, Barack Obama has been the best president of my lifetime. Go, you can cringe there. I know you want to, Kristen. I, I but... did, but it's okay. I, I still like you, Mike. <laughs> Thank you. But to me, that, that then goes into what I would call personality and character. And one of the big things that I look for here is uh, what I guess I would call a certain open-mindedness and uh, uh, intellectual humility. You know, a willingness to admit that you even privately, that you don't know everything and that you can learn things from people who are different than you are. You know, that's one of the things I really admired about, for instance, uh, uh, former Justice uh, Antonin Scalia. Mm -hmm. You know, he always he made a practice of always hiring one liberal on his on his staff of clerks so he could have somebody who have who would put put, you know, good arguments against what he would necessarily think. And I think that's incredibly important. And that's exactly yeah. what Donald Trump does not do. Mm -hmm. And I think you need that in a president because it's a tough job and no one comes in prepared for that job, I don't think. And so the ability to learn and be flexible, uh, you know, and, and open to things, I think that's hugely, hugely important. And uh, other other traits that go along with that, I think, honesty, transparency, treating people well is a good thing. And so that, to me, is incredibly important. And I don't know how well Mike Bloomberg does on that. If I had to rank the candidates on that, to me, even though he doesn't have much experience, Pete Buttigieg seems to me to be tops in that category. Uh, you know, um, uh, then maybe Joe Biden, Klobuchar, Bloomberg, Sanders, Warren kind of at the end. I don't know. But uh, I mean, you would agree that that's important, right? I think it's important. I don't know that that it's that it's one of the the first things I think it's important. I, I do love the idea, though, when you were talking about hiring Antonin Scal Justice Scalia, hiring um, a liberal to sort of help him craft his arguments and to give some some weight to whatever it was that he was deciding. Um, I, that's a very Abraham Lincoln, that's sort of a page right out of Abraham Lincoln's book, the idea of like a team of, team of rivals, of, you know, yeah, a team of rivals, which was a fantastic book, by the way, but, yes, um, you know, it was amazing, but, you know, I, I think, um, I think that's important. It's, it's something that I've actually talked to many people. I don't know if I've mentioned on the show, but that's one of my bigger criticisms of, of, of Trump. And it's something I've, I've always felt was lacking was this idea of like reaching across the aisle. I mean, he's done it before, but it's sort of begrudgingly, you know, kind of like you're a, a, a parent leading a kid, you know, <laughs> so sure. sort of like pulling them across. Um, but the, but the idea of, you know, having people surrounding yourself with people who are just smarter than you and, and, you know, have more expertise than you in certain areas, even if they aren't part of the same political party 
as you is very, very important. And it's something that I personally wish he did more of. And I, and I think it's important moving forward, especially with this divisive, you know, climate we're dealing with now. I think that in the future, that would be something very, very important for um, a different candidate, a different presidential candidate to, to really talk about. And it's, and, and when you talk about Mike Bloomberg, no, it's not something that, that Mike Bloomberg has a, has a fantastic record of doing. Yeah. Um, to me, I mean, but, yeah, yeah. On, on that trait, like I said, it seems to me just so clear that Pete Buttigieg is just far and away the strongest one on that. For me, at least. Some people maybe could make that case for Bernie Sanders. I guess yeah. they would. But that's more an authenticity thing. And I'm talking more about an openness. And I don't get the sense that Bernie is necessarily a very open guy. He's certainly committed. No. But uh not necessarily open to other things. And I think that was part of the back and forth between Pete Buttigieg and, and Bernie Sanders on the on the stage in Nevada. What about Joe Biden to that to that sense? Did you mention Joe Biden? Yeah, you know, Joe yeah. Biden's a weird guy. Um, I know. In so many ways, because I get the sense that Joe Biden's identity is so bound up in being a politician. Yeah. I don't even know that there is a Joe Biden uh, as, as like a human being. I mean, he's no. been... His whole life has been running for office, in office, and so I, I, there's a so I don't know, I don't know really. I, I would I would probably put him right behind Buttigieg, but uh, yeah, I don't know. But here's the last thing, and this this is I think doesn't get talked about a lot is is physical fitness. You know, the the mm -hmm. presidency is an incredibly physically and emotionally stressful, demanding job, and when I think that we have on the Democratic side three people in their late seventies who are running. Bloomberg, 78. Sanders is 78. Biden is 77. Warren's practically a spring chicken at, you know, 70 running for the job. My God. Bloomberg, 78? 78. 78. Yep. He looks really good for 78. I well, you know, he's, like he's he getting injected with, I don't know, sheep embryos or something been, yeah. somewhere oh. in Switzerland. I don't know. But anyway, um, <laughs> but, but, but yeah, so that concerns me. It concerns me the most with Joe Biden. Because yeah. Joe Biden clearly seems to have slipped the most. Bloomberg and Sanders, I mean, they both they were on the stage talking about their stents. Well, Bloomberg didn't want to, but uh, mm -hmm. but but Sanders brought it up. An and, important question. Yeah, though. it is an important question, you know. And then you have you know Buttigieg, who's in his thirties, and Klobuchar's in her fifties. And honestly, that makes me a lot more comfortable, given how stressful a job is. And I think, you know, for any of those three. Before the end of their first term, they would be in their 80s. And mm -hmm. I, I know a lot of people, and I, I know some people, I know enough people in their 80s, mm -hmm. and I know what tends to happen. And the idea that you can't say that you don't, haven't lost at least a few steps by then, I don't care who you are. I, I, just, don't, I just don't buy that. And that's a big concern. So those, that, those, are my, those are my lists of things that I think are important. And when I put all those together, it just makes me sad. You know, there's, yeah. I, I, there's nobody who I could just say, yeah, that's the guy that was Cory Booker yeah. was my guy, you know, and he's gone. I know. And so I'm stuck. And I think, my God, if only, if only Pete had a little more experience, I would be, I would be such an enthusiastic supporter, but he doesn't. And so I don't know. It's not an ideal group, I would say for sure. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I, I get a lot of, a lot of our listeners are, 
you know, our, our millennials or, or even some Gen Zers, and you see all these just boomers hanging on to power. I mean, not Bernie, because Bernie has that unique connection. And I, yeah. I get the whole OK Boomer thing. I, I'm with you on that <laughs> hashtag in a, in a big way. But uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, certainly, it's certainly frustrating, you know. Um, yeah. One, one other thing, you know, yeah. with Mike Bloomberg still being, I think, a, a major force to be reckoned with just because of his money. Uh, a lot of people, it seems like especially there's been this push on the progressive left to say, Mike Bloomberg, just his very existence is is a problem for democracy. And there's that question at debate, should Mike Bloomberg even be allowed to exist? <laughs> you know? and, yeah. and Bloomberg's response is, wow, this is exactly the sort of question that Republicans love it when we talk about, because this is what's going to real. Like, yeah, <laughs> I, you know, and yeah. I, I said, yeah, you're you're absolutely right, Mike Bloomberg. and. When you think about what a Bloomberg presidency would look like, I mean, it would be a lot like the presidency of the other three moderates. Big focus on key liberal issues. Bloomberg has put a ton of money into guns, climate mm-hmm. change, health care. I mean, he might be a little eager, less eager to go after businesses than the others. But if you take a look at his recent tax plan, it called for a fee on every single financial transaction. Yep. And that would raise five trillion dollars over 10 years that's not exactly a centrist sort of thing you know Mm -hmm. and one thing i really like about him is he is a technocrat he's super smart he's super analytical i felt that i felt that about barack obama too you know and in that sense i get Mm -hmm. the sense that they're kind of kindred spirits and Mm -hmm. so but the fact that you know so what what does buying an election even mean I, i don't even buy that premise that Mike mm-hmm. Bloomberg can buy. He can certainly buy a seat at the table as consideration, but I don't think he's going to buy anything if he doesn't have a message that resonates with people. Yeah. No. And to say to me, to say that someone is buying the election is basically telling the voters, you're, you're just a bunch of idiots and he can manipulate yep. you with his money. And I reject that as well. And I get why the other candidates are saying it because they wish they had a billion dollars to throw around. They don't. And so they have to say something. And so they're going to question, you know, the essentially, you know, the, the wisdom and the, the intelligence of the electorate. And that's, that's make no mistake. That's what they're doing. Yeah, I, you know, I wanted to make two quick points um, regarding Bloomberg and then sort of, a, well, I'll make a, a, a different point first. So one of the things that I noticed that was going on, and um, I talked about this the next day with a couple of different people, is um, the fact that everybody seemed to be trying to sort of go at the jugular and pick off the person who is just slightly above them in the polls. So it almost felt like if, if you kind of looked at the, at this at these six people, Klobuchar was just nipping at Pete Buttigieg's heels. If you, she just really went after him, um, and and it sort of it fell flat for her. I think. Well, but, yeah, um, I think in part because it seemed like I felt like she was going to just throw up at any minute. Any minute, yeah, she seemed she, so. She looked upset, yeah, know, it was really not yeah, a good. I mean, when you talk about uh, that sort of not so much likability, but it's hard to get behind somebody who feels like they're seems like they're just nervous and desperate that's not a good luck yeah Yeah. and and then you know conversely you saw um elizabeth warren going after mike bloomberg quite a bit which you know again like gave her a little bit of boost um in the polls i think that's that'll probably temper um you know as this next week kind of transpires and the caucuses you know the everything sort of moves along in the shuffle of an election year I, i think you'll see that die down but there was this sort of like rallying cry for her to keep doing this keep being more aggressive because, you know, I, I saw a 
headline that was something like nice Lizzie isn't here anymore. Now it's mean Lizzie or something. You know, she she seemed angry and upset. Um, and she she really picked on him about, like you said, buying this election. And um, and and I thought Bloomberg did his best to fight back, but he was just the not ready for primetime yeah. player, you know, in that sense. He just he wasn't prepared for it. And then um conversely, uh Joe Biden was just sort of on stage, you know, it's just, it was hard to understand what his message was, who he was going after. Um, everybody at some point teamed up on Mike Bloomberg. Um, a few times it was directed at Bernie. Then it was back and forth between Bernie and Bloomberg for a little while. So it just seemed like everybody, it just, it was almost like a chaotic thing to watch, which I understand because I remember dealing with, I actually went physically to a Republican debate um, in 2016. And I thought the same thing. I'm like, oh, everybody's just attacking the person above them in the polls. Yeah. But, you know, to, to this extent, um, the idea that Mike Bloomberg can come in and, and buy an election, I feel like it's it's a it's a point that will, unfortunately, in our minds, you know, we're, we're thinking about policy and, and, and about, you know, electability and things like that. Um, and I would point to 2016 as a really good example of this. I mean, Clinton outspent Donald Trump like exponent by exponential amounts in terms of um, commercials and advertisements and everything else. And, and she didn't win. So, you know, I, every, it seems like every four years, these numbers go up, 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 up. But the, the idea that he's buying the election falls while it falls flat for some of us who kind of look at the greater historical perspective and say, well, every four years we spend more and more and more. Honestly, to most people, that will resonate. And they know that people like Warren and Sanders, sure. you know, the, the people who support them know that they don't like millionaires and billionaires. You know, they're 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 really out to get people like Mike Bloomberg. So that message of buying the election, although some of us, you know, sat there cringing, I think it's safe to say that a lot of people were probably applauding that because it sounds good and yeah. it sounds right and exciting to them. And it's why people like Bernie Sanders get the support they do, because they say these things. Now, is it true? Uh, you know, I don't I don't know that it's true. Mike Bloomberg's outspent them all exponentially again. But um you know, every every time I turn on the TV, I see ten Mike Bloomberg ads. Of course, yeah. I'm in Florida, which which is you know a a hot state. Everybody wants to grab, but um, you know, I I agree with you on on the idea of buying an election. I just I don't think that that's the case, and I think it's I think if I was a Democrat, I'd probably be a little offended too, um, if somebody were to say that to me. But yeah, I mean that is something that would resonate with people. Yeah, so I want and to that's point you know, that out. And and one of our uh, we had a, a number of questions about Bloomberg on our uh, bipartisan politics Reddit group, and that was one kind of an, an issue that came up. Uh, uh, Sabacon was one of the because uh, you know it's always these uh, these Reddit names, but Sabacon yeah. is a big a big fan of the show and a big contributor on on the group. Mentioned that same sort of thing about buying the election. We had we also had some other good comments or questions. One from uh, our teacher who wrote in that his tendencies, this is Bloomberg, his tendencies toward racist mindsets, policies, and sexism and misogyny should mm -hmm. be disqualifying for any candidacy, but especially one that strives to become the leader of the Democratic Party. And, you know, that that's obviously a, an issue that, you know, you have to, you have to deal with, right? Because there are allegations out there. Now, the way that I think, I think Elizabeth Warren took the low road and how she, yeah. I mean, some just, well, there are some allegations and I'll just mention these worst things and to treat this as if it's something that Mike Bloomberg said. And just like with Donald Trump, I feel like that, you know, we should assume 
that these people are innocent until proven otherwise. Now, with Donald Trump, we had a, you know, a tape of him saying mm-hmm. things about women. And so, Mike Bloomberg, yeah, we should investigate these things. But attacking without, without you know, clear evidence is, you know, I think problematic. And so if that comes out, let's say that these women are, you know, that uh, are released from, they they ask to be released from their non-disclosure agreements and, and they are, and they say, Mike Bloomberg said the thing like was one of them's like, well, I do you or something like that. Yeah, that's, Mm -hmm. that is, that is a, a, a wrong and reprehensible thing to say, but that is not the entirety of the person. So how do we weigh that in? Well, is that something that he still does? How much of a pattern is it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Democrats had to deal with the same thing, obviously, with Bill Clinton in the 90s. And so it's the same thing that conservatives have to deal with with Donald Trump. How much yep. of his misogyny and awfulness do we does that does that weigh against what we feel he is going to do that's positive for the country? And so, of course, that's a consideration, but it's not the only consideration. And I, I disagree that it's disqualifying. Now, there are certain things that would be disqualifying. For instance, if you if, if a candidate had you know, recently used certain words, racial epithets mm-hmm. and so forth to describe people or certain words to describe women, you know, like beginning with the C or something like that. Well, mm-hmm. right away, I'd say, no, I'm sorry. I just can't accept that in a president. I don't yeah. care what other things that person brings to the table. But for some other cases, it is a factor to consider, but I don't think, at least it's not disqualifying for me. And I'm guessing you probably feel the same way because oh, yeah. you've had to deal with that with, you know, with oh, President yeah. Trump. And I, had, I had issues. In fact, uh, one of the things, and, I, and I'll, I'll put this out there, one of the first things that I really latched onto, um, and I, again, I, and I've said on the show when, in, back in, you know, 2015, 2016, he was my last choice Republican candidate. You know, he was the I didn't think he was electable. Um, what he was saying just wasn't resonating with me. Um, I preferred any other candidate. Um, you know, I was a Rand Paul supporter for a while. I was a Ted Cruz supporter for a while. I, I you know, I kind of jumped back and forth. And um, one of the things that I really latched on to was the fact that, um, you know, he was mocking um, ap- women's appearance, appearances, I should say. Mm-hmm. So he, he seemed to hone in on on appearance and he bashed Carly Fiorina on stage. And I actually it's funny because on I keep my my personal Facebook page pretty light and airy just for That's career. A good thing. Reasons. Yeah. Yeah. I, I you know, if um if when I when I do debate issues, you know, and I and I talk about politics, I do it in forums like this and, and you know, with friends um, who, you know, who I can actually get some feedback from. But, on, you know, on Facebook, I actually it was one of the only times I ever really went off. Um, and I was I was furious with the fact that he mocked her appearance. And I and I said so I said so on Facebook. I'm not really on Twitter, but I think I might have even tweeted something. And I got a I got a lot of, uh, of, of blowback from that, actually, from people who supported Trump. And I and I and there were some people who considered it too, but I think that um, you know overall the the process of my getting to voting to, for Trump was being able to look past that and realizing well it is about a bigger picture than that I don't I really don't like this I don't stand for it is it enough to make me not vote for him in the end you know considering the whole picture probably not and I think people who 
were already looking at Mike Bloomberg favorably or can see, you know, you know, maybe I mean, I, I don't think he would make a good president, obviously. But, you know, there are people who might say, well, he might make a good president. He's better than Donald Trump. I'm willing to look past some of these yeah. things without real proof of these things happening recently, which yeah. is, you know, to your point. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a bigger picture um, when people get angry with me and they say, why are you voting for Donald Trump? And they bring up things like that. This is pretty much my argument is that, you know, I think you have to look at the totality yeah. of the person and what they're trying to do and what they're trying to accomplish in your own ideals and, and your yeah. vision for the future too. So yeah, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, for myself right now, I'm, I'm struggling with yeah. that because I'm going yeah. to be voting on super Tuesday, like millions of other people. Yeah, right. Are, yes. So, uh, so, you know, I mean, for me right now, it's, uh, you know, I, 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 there's a lot I like about what Mike Bloomberg is saying. And, but there are these other aspects that I think are legitimate, you know, reasons for concern. Uh, and, and there's a lot, obviously, I like about if I just were just going by debate performances, it would be easy because Pete Buttigieg, I just I love the I guy. Know. You know, he's a good debater, too. He I mean, he's, really he is. remains calm and collected. He is. He's like Barack Obama was the same way. Right? Yeah. There are definitely some hints of Barack Obama there. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, and I, I that that appeals to me like crazy. So uh, I so I don't know. I, I will. I will say this. I I will let everyone know. Now, the ballot is secret, but I will let everyone know who I voted for on Super Tuesday and why. I imagine people will be at least a little bit curious. But honestly, I I don't know. I don't. It's not going to be Joe Biden. Uh, even though I, I, I said a couple of weeks ago that I think he'll win the nomination. This, the may, I, I he, thought so too. His, his free fall is quicker than I even anticipated. So we'll see what happens in South Carolina, but, uh, yeah. but so I haven't decided yet and, uh, I'm, I'm still doing some heavy duty mulling, but, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about that after Super Tuesday. So I know we're kind of out of time today, but, but we still have so much to cover. Kristen, yeah. we didn't get a chance to talk about, for instance, a contested convention. Oh. And I know we have a lot to say about that. Yeah, had so many notes written down. Oh, I was and, so excited and to talk about it. <laughs> not, not only that, but there's that whole issue of, you know, uh, this last week, right? Donald Trump named yet another mm -hmm. acting agency head. And I think that's just a huge issue that we really want to dig deep into. And the good news is. The good news is, is we are going to do that on the midweek supporters only show. So if you are a Patreon supporter, you're going to get that. And if not, hey, it's real simple to do that. Just go to patreon.com slash politics guys and sign right up. And again, if you can't afford that $5 a month, we get it. So just email me at Mike at and I will make sure you get that midweek episode. And uh, also, uh, we, you know, we really do appreciate if you could subscribe to the show, leave ratings, reviews. That really helps us out a lot. That would be great. And, of course, sharing your favorite episodes on social media or email. You already know how to get in touch with us. Mail at politicsguys.com. And I keep on mentioning our bipartisan politics subreddit because I just like it so much. And the link's in the show notes. You can also just go to Reddit and search for bipartisan politics. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we are, of course, on Twitter. And that's at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, and Daniel Toe. Today's show is produced by... Us, Mike Baranowski and Kristen Matheny. We will be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.